And good afternoon. It's about 20 or 25 seconds, I guess, after 4 o'clock. Uh, thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding a Voice, spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc. .ca. And coming up on the show today, uh, and I shouldn't mention that I could have started at 4 o'clock, but I really didn't want to break into that song. I felt bad, actually, kind of fading the last 10 seconds out. So uh, so anyway, we are here. And in this first hour, I uh, should mention up until about, uh, I don't know, four, four and a half years ago, uh, everything I've done for the last amount of that time, so say four plus years, uh, I save or I edit and then I save all of uh, all of the files to uh, memory stick and then I upload uh, read each of the readings has its own file off of the memory stick uh, into uh, the system and then I choose the ones that I'm airing that day before that. I used to record everything and edit it, and then instead of saving it to USB, I saved them all to disk, all to a CD. And that's what I used to use for the first five years of this show. Well, the reason I mention that is coming up tomorrow for the next three days uh, is uh, our annual three-day poetry festival called Poets at Art Fest, and this one is Poets at Art Fest 5, which means it is the fifth year. And I happen to be uh, sorting through some CDs, thinking that's what I might do today to, I've got an assortment of other CDs uh, that are professionally recorded or uh, recorded by other companies uh, that, uh, that have poetry that I use from time to time. But I stumbled upon, uh, I had... Uh, saved uh, for some reason uh, I saved those CDs I don't I didn't save any of the others but I saved those CDs from the very first year of uh, Poets at Art Fest when it made its debut uh, back in 2015 so what I've done and I'm going to do is uh, uh, select six readings uh, from the v first day of the very first festival and the first two sessions in it uh, back in uh, original Poets at Art Fest would have been one if it would have had a numeral, but uh, it wasn't. So anyway, uh, that's what you're going to hear. And in this first hour, uh, you're going and there are three readings in each. In this first hour, you'll hear readings by... Paul Kelly, Elizabeth Green, and John Donlan. And then in the second hour, again from that original Poets at Art Fest in 2015, uh, you're going to hear readings by Alyssa Cooper, David Pratt, and Susan Olding. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I listened to them before I came on, well, earlier this week, before I came on the air, just to make sure everything still worked, and it did, so... I'm excited to share share this with you today. I uh, need to do the usual first thing, though. Uh, occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. 
Uh, we'll have ample time to share upcoming events and calls for submissions, especially, I think, at the end of this hour, maybe not so much in uh, the second hour, but uh, uh, I will share, I will have plenty of time to share some upcoming events with you, and there are quite a few. Uh, things slow down after this upcoming week a bit, uh, but there's a lot going on, so I want to get it out there. So tell you what, uh, just to start off with, and again, uh, with the Poets at Art Fest 5, a three-day festival coming up beginning tomorrow morning, bright and early actually, at uh, 9 o'clock with a writing workshop I'll be facilitating. So uh, I thought it would be, as I said, kind of... Uh, neat to play a few of the recordings from that first day of the original first year's event. So, again, up first in that, in that first hour session, uh, you're going to hear Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly's uh, pu uh, publications have appeared in many journals and anthologies in Canada and in the U.S., in addition to poems, uh, these include translations from uh, Spanish, French, and German poets, essays on poetry, philosophy, sociology, politics, education, travel, art, film, and photography. You're very diverse. <laughs> Prose, fiction, a stage play, a radio play, and performance art pieces. He has been the recipient of awards from the British Columbia Arts Council, the Corner Foundation, uh, the Canada Council, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. He has taught and lectured at Simon Fraser University, the University of British Columbia, uh, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and Queen's University. A selection of 22 of his poems will be published in uh, Spanish translation in Cuba later this year. His most recent book is Matters Music. Now out of print, but I am told just ahead of the reading, the last one is at Novel Idea. So if you want to get the last one, go get it. He lives in Kingston with his partner Susan and their son Kurt. Let's give a hand to Paul Kelly. They sound pretty good on paper, don't they? <laughs> I want to thank Bruce for all the organizing and all the work that he's done to bring this about and with. Well, let's hope that it, it, it keeps going. And I want to thank you for turning out on this damp and somewhat miserable day. So the first poem I'm going to read is about damp, miserable days. It's called At Tom's, Vancouver. In straits of morning's meeting of gray with gray, at the thinner, thin tear of light from itself, along the breadth of its shudder, a searching touch reaches the nerve of the rose. New rain in this quiet room gathers in the double face of glass in glass. For the first time, the moment's second moment leans out, leans out once more. Uh, this poem, like several of the others I'm going to read, uh, doesn't have a title. Don't worry about that. Don't be scared. From one sleeve flap to another rattling up the unowned breeze, the white breath of Sundays unfold. Yellow breaths shelter in the buttercups of the children's sleep room, a short avenue of butterflies stitched through bending weed blades, 
urgent as brick, dust, broken paper. All that can unhappen. Now again, you know, all the blueness one buttonhole can gather for half-wild remembering. <coughs> this one has a title, but it's in brackets. So it's almost not there. The non-interfering roses splendor the dirt and dung they sprung from, dream-hued, a memory of grace, they untime this air, marvelous as intricate, folded and whirled as petals, open and close the mouth we began with. Perched on the tip of the thorn, come cradled in moonlight, in sheets of tide and stone, silence binds each clod to the spark of the star. Bears this moment as the ever when histories begin their motions and their rests, one pulse worth all the pain of having been born. I know you, Lark Song, sudden, iffy on the hour's fence, flash and memoration in one breath, so still in all but thought and hunger's figures. Old hopes sung through fresh snows, we were pured with waiting. I include your shadow when I tell the time of history. Between the hammer and the nail, between the drill and the screw, between the teeth of the saw, cry maze bright profusions. In the between, one of the hollows history is full of, infinitesimal, where the blossom comes into its name, where into the gap in the human hubbub, unbidden, the lark sings through the steel. Lily, lover, comrade, the sky spreads the center of its pink opening over the tree you were hung upon. Tree without shadow, where no birds nested then and nest not there now. Radiant ones, forsaken, this hallelujah is for you. All that love and blood nailed as you to my forgiveness. This one's got a title. It's called Memo to the Colleagues. <laughs> Over the philosophy of wasps, a cloud offered shelter. The tree sang glory up to the lowly sparrow so that I could not bring myself to the place where you swarmed to fondle the axe. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the little-tongued bear grew small. Small, he grew smaller. Smaller in the make-believe town town small enough to slip unseen, unseen into the chinks of the manor, manor where the mouse folk lived, lived in the children's books, books where he slept the soft hush of the moon, moon where he woke to say all the suns were bleeding and singing, bleeding and singing into the dust unborn. See through dark and snow time, delivers in cold glints a tiny spark of rust, of outrage, 
star of blood, corrosion's fervent rhizome. Here comes something quite exact, a beginning, unapologetic, sudden with the strength of the road. On the other side of ice, a wild red devotion whispers into civil iron the birth of its insatiable fruit. The end of hope blossoms red and pales before the green heart. An argument of light gives name its day. One kiss, a desert that kindles history. Despair and wonder sleep, breath and limb, thorn and flesh entwined against and with each other. Their flowers call finality. Winds from the past have pushed it into being here. All that you gather, Judas tree, I recite to myself. For Paul Verlaine and Cesar Vallejo. Among the gone flowers, the autumn rose does not sleep through the river. It bleeds the water dark and homeless. Over the half-light, its yellow shock illumines the friendless. Under all knowing, it spreads open the cloud of its barbed unimpatience. The commotion of murmurs in the breath of those daffodils, that small yellow noise, steady, sure, I keep to myself, still. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That was wonderful. Let's give him another hand. And you just heard Paul Kelly in his reading in the 2015 debut of the now annual Poets at Art Fest series. I should mention in it, uh, not only with his, but, uh, and I may do it again another time or two, but... Again, please remember these were four years ago and some of the bios uh, that I gave that day for that time were current for that time. So uh, if you're interested in any of these, you could probably look them up, Google search, and uh, you would find uh, find out what the current bio is like. So that just ahead of this, up next in that session uh, that morning, Back in 2015, at the original Poets at Art Fest, here was Elizabeth Green. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here. Sorry about that. I told you I am not used to using the CD player. I'm used to using the other source, so my apologies. Up next now, here is Elizabeth Green. And... Up next, uh, here are two books, too, that she has for sale. Uh, is Elizabeth Green? Uh, Elizabeth Green has published three books of poetry, The Iron Shoes, Moving, and, Under- and Understories. She edited and contributed to We Who Can Fly, poems, essays, and memoirs in honor of Adele Wiseman, which won the Betty and Morris Aaron Prize for Best Scholarship on a Canadian Subject. 
Her most recent publications are two reviews in the Times Higher Education magazine in London. Her poem Horoscopes will appear in the Literary Review of Canada's 25th anniversary website. Let's give a hand to Elizabeth Green. Well, thanks very much, Bruce. And hello, everyone. Happy Canada Day. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm really happy to be reading with three such great poets. And um, and I know everyone's going to thank Bruce for his stellar organization, but thank you for me, too. Okay. So I'm going to start with what's... Um, What's my current sign? I'm going to start with my current signature piece, um, Planet of the Lost Things. Phantom Books. I always thought I'd been careful of my books, knew they might vanish, but there's still some I reach for that are nowhere in the present. The Professor and the Mermaid, lovely story of a young man studying classics one hot Sicilian summer, a mermaid supple as a sea otter, long blonde hair, a classic come to life, speaking Greek, passionate, playful, a dream lover who stays till the weather turns and the mermaids go back to sea. I've bought it twice, lent it twice, it's gone. And the woodlanders, my favorite hardy, Giles Winterborn, loved well in life and after, what I remember, damp southern English air, tragic and intense. I can walk into it even now. What was I thinking when I packed my books? Did I think I was done with Keats or German grammar? If I could mislay the books I loved, what about things I treasured less? Phantom stores. At 68, I walk through vanished worlds through streets irrevocably changed. I'm still turning corners to failed coffee shops, dreaming egg and anchovy sandwiches, looking forward to browsing for antiques in stores now sushi places or runner's choice. I miss Paradiso, green and leafy in whitest winter. If Mrs. Dalloway had bought flowers in Kingston, she'd have bought them here. Wondrous lilies, purple alliums, green bells of Ireland, perfect for any party. And Sultan's Bazaar, exotic rugs and tablecloths, onyx goblets, Allison presiding high priestess-like over hand-carved furniture and water pipes she'd shepherded from souks and villages. I didn't lose these stores, but still, they're gone. Phantom clothes. It's the clothes I miss most, the clothes and the body that wore them. <laughs> that kicky 60s dress, swirling black and white like a zebra on pot. I wore it with yellow stockings, blue earrings, yellow hat. It probably wouldn't have lasted 50 years. I miss it. And that long black sweater, that felt like sliding inside a licorice stick. Was I careless enough to let moths at it? Or did I give it away because an astrologer told me wearing black let in the dark? 
I saved a blue silk suit, one that doesn't date. It's hanging out in the back of my closet. I never wear it. The subtles and sea winds jacket, golds and purples, magnificent, waiting for me with those gold drop earrings, two soon vanished friends, the amber necklace which dropped off two months before I removed my wedding ring forever on the planet of the lost things. <laughs> okay, and I, I should say, this, this Galabea is from Sultan's Bazaar, <laughs> and you can't get anything like it in Kingston unless you find it secondhand. Um, and the other thing is that I see in store windows there are lots of swirling black and white clothes, but none as amazing as that dress. <laughs> okay, so the next poem I'm going to read is an elegy for, um, for Terry Willett, um, who was a colonel in the British Army and taught sociology at Queen's and RMC and... Um, and who decided in his late 70s that he really was a woman, that's in the poem, and he transgendered at 79, which is amazing. You know, it's amazing to me. I mean, I think it took a lot of courage. Okay, so this is um, in belated honor of um, Pride Month. Hmm? When we met, Terry was a man whose wife had died, black velvet jacket hanging lopsided to the left, as if he was uncomfortable in his skin. That spring he decided he really was a woman, started counseling, advice on makeup, clothes, came out at 79. The only woman I'd ever known who'd been a colonel in the British Army, ridden horses in Africa. As a woman, she wore swishy dresses, lime green or ice blue, with frilly necks, good with her curled white hair and vivid lips. She'd sweep through her parties, glass in hand. Terry's parties, lots of booze, no children, grown-ups only, in that sixth-floor condo with views of town and river on three sides. In winter, a gas fire in the living room. Always something lurid about Terry's parties. An ex-nun married, dressed to the nines, a friend whose husband left her for another man, a smarmy woman with her grown daughter who visited the old and sick and got them to change their wills in favor of the Humane Society. <laughs> After Terry died, her daughter Sue gathered us in her memory one last time. For once, there were children. It wasn't the last chapter of A La Recherche, but maybe next to last. True, there was something sad, some papering over the cracks at this last of Terry's parties, something not quite right. Someone said Terry's real contribution was getting us all together, but I think it was the way she lived, with courage and an iron will. You could see it in her well-manicured, strong hands, and a belief friends are just as important as family that it's possible to survive dysfunction and live with brio in great clothes. Okay, so, so <laughs> okay, well, thank you. So I'm going to read two Kingston, more or less Kingston poems. 
um, this this one I wrote the first draft on the bus from Toronto to Kingston, and you probably all know where the hawks hang out along the 401. So this is watching for hawks. This soft November Sunday on the bus, long grass bleached pale gold, spent with the effort of a season's growth, husks still straight in memory of the sun, hawk in a tree, breast surprisingly round, soft, pillow white. Miles later, another hunched on a branch, ready to swoop. We'd see it if the bus weren't hurtling along the highway, metal horse hurrying home for oats, vacant nests, dark in branches. December winds will sweep them down, dark pines bending east, years of weather visible in their slant. Hawk flying in the distance, its talons down, intersection of a mouse's sudden end and Sunday lunch. Trees find branches reaching to the sky, carrying the news that wind is on the way, edge of storms. This gentle rainy Sunday, an elegy for itself. Tomorrow branches will be barer, nests torn, hawks more visible but colder, watching more urgently, wings pulled tight against their breasts. Okay, and this next poem, any of you could have written, but it was given to me. Okay. Um, April morning, 7.15, the market's bustling. Elegant old black cars, polished new, zip along King Street. Shaggy hoofed horses draw carriages. An old steam engine rolls on the world's smallest track. Wood stalls full of cauliflowers, cabbages at odds with April. It's 1901, Buffalo, posters proclaim. My eye doctor's old office, a photography shop, a securities firm, the Elmwood Hotel, St. George's Cathedral, a post office with great green wings to adjust the light. Is that Mia Wasikowska floating down the street, twinkling star in a long brown dress? A week of preparation for the filming, Horses, carriages, old cars, engine and its track, fake greenery, a mound of earth to dress the street, trucked in. Lights, cameras, it's like walking into someone's dream. But the set's only skin deep. You can't buy the cauliflowers. If you asked an extra to tea, you'd find someone from now in the shell of 1901. It's all about getting in position create the image, record the shot. All this for three minutes of finished film. Early afternoon, the shooting's over. Set starting to dissolve, the circus leaving town. In its wake, orange pylons warning streets are being undressed, returned to pavement. A film of mud, the only trace of enchantment as the market returns to tulips, asparagus, the weave of April days. Okay, so I'm going to read two more poems. Um, okay, um, okay, I'm reading this next one in honor of Elva and Bob, who became new grandparents last Wednesday. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> okay, um, Miracles. 
I thought miracles were supposed to be easy, less work, more graceful, gifts sudden as otters. So here I am in the middle of a July night, hooked up to an intravenous drip, sprouting machinery, no longer a simple person. It takes this array of tubes and monitors for one to become two. Everything's blurred, my glasses taken somewhere with my clothes, my books. I'm naked under my hospital gown, reduced to essentials in this lurid light, the vestibule of afterlife. I sleep between contractions, grabbing eternity where I can. The baby isn't coming, seems headed for my spine, mad as hell. Daylight comes and doctors. One says the baby's turned, transverse. I need to push so he can be turned by hand. I can't, I do. Alan arcs into the world. They take him, wash him, stitch me up. It doesn't feel like a miracle. But once I've slept, much later, maybe it does, with Alan in my arms, delicate as a tiny seahorse, unfurling. <laughs> oh, so my last poem is touched by history, and um, maybe I should preface this by say, saying that one of my most recent publications no one will ever know about, because after Bill C-51 passed, I was in absolute despair, and I wrote my web astrologer, and I said I was really unhappy with our prime minister. In fact, I said it much more strongly, but he, he edited it and put it on his website, and I asked, was change possible? He said change was always possible. So, so um, Okay, so this is touched by history. After 68 years outside looking in, History taps me on the shoulder. I thought I was living my life, letting my cats in and out, walking by the lake, grilling fish for dinner, when suddenly history says, it's your turn for ruin. Why should you be exempt, safer than millions out of work, homeless, on the streets? When times go bad, governments flex their muscles, pass laws that let them take what they want, arrest who they want, Irene Nemirovsky, sitting on her blue sweater in the Mai woods, leaves wet with last night's storm, writing Sweet Francaise, that tribute to French bourgeois life in the midst of war, that care with cheese, fruit, serenity of polished wood and lace, arrested July 13th, killed in Auschwitz August 17th, age 39, in her notebook, she wrote, What Lives On, Our Humble Day-to-Day -day Lives, Two, Art, Three, God. Her daughter saved half-finished Sweet Francaise in a suitcase, didn't dare read it for 50 years. Touched by history, Irene let her spirit rise above her life. Dark ages end, justice returns, after disaster, legacy. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Green. Let's give her another hand.
And that was Elizabeth Green uh, and her reading. It's actually, I, I remember the day, it was July 1st. Uh, that was actually, it's been a three-day uh, annual Poets at Art Fest festival the last three years, but because of just the way it happened to fall that year, it was actually a four-day festival that year. Uh, and uh, July 1st uh, was the opening day. It ran J- July 1st through the 4th. Back in 2015, and that was Elizabeth Green's reading from that very first morning session of it that year. And I'm just getting queued up here. There we go. Uh, and uh, coming up next uh, from that uh, morning reading, and he was the final reader that morning, here is John Donlan. Up next, and the final poet of this session, the next one starts at 1, and I'll talk about that after uh, he's done. But up next, we have uh, John Donlan, lives in Vancouver half the year, where he works as a reference librarian for the Vancouver Public Library. Am I reading the right one here? Yep. Cool. And uh, for the other six months, he lives on a lake north of Kingston, surrounded by 177 acres of wilderness. It sounds cool. Spirit Engine is his fourth collection of poetry. Let's give him a hand. John Donlan. Thank you, Bruce. It's a wonderful introduction, and thank you all for coming, and happy Canada Day. This is great. Nice hat. Oh, thank you. Yes, a tribute to... uh, a, t- a town I hold dear. <laughs> we'll get to that later. I'm going to start uh, uh, um, as a librarian, a very orderly, and I always read my poems in chronological order, the same way they're published. So, from the first book, um, Domestic Economy, I'm going to read Unacted. <clears throat> it's about uh, growing up in a, in a small town. This may be the experience of, of, of some of you. Uh, it's certainly my experience at a little village of about 200 people. Unacted. Shy between dances, some drink in their cars, watching for cops, practicing the swagger that passes for a man in those places. They could be learning with a city girl. I've never told anyone what I'm telling you. The scent of wet earth rising, the slow freight shaking the air, Something wants these to pass unnoticed. In me, wills me to disappear into silence. Press the pillow over its face like a cloud smothering a mountain. You still hear that song you hate, those twangy voices insisting on the music of their sorrow. We thought we'd always live in this valley, speaking the language no one else wanted. Hey, Tijan, Stompin' Tom, what's his ears? Play it, for, play it for us again in our cheap kitchens. From Baysville, my second book. <clears throat> this is for John Clare. John Clare was an a English uh, romantic poet, a contemporary uh, of, uh, of uh, John Keats. <clears throat> not nearly as uh, successful at the time. He came from a working class family and lived almost all his life as a laborer. Uh, okay. A column of gnats flickers like ideas in slanting sunlight. 
Brownian doesn't begin to describe this motion, the aerobatic equivalent of clean out the fridge soup, maybe fractal dancing. I guess they know what they're doing. Now the air is like green water, filling the yard, boxed in with walnut, maple, elm, hackberry, cedar. Our lungs inhale common elements. Energy remakes each minute, pushes time through our veins as if sorrow had no dimension. Flowing, melting the fist in the chest, erratic boulder buried in glacial till, debris of the heart's unstoppable opening, bulldozing common sense under. That other nature, dismayingly professional, just won't stop giving. I could walk all day through these weeds, wildflowers, saving graces, blabbering beauty for a week. This poem set in South Frontenac. Minnows. So unlikely, so many feet above the lake, in ponds filled with nothing but rain, minnows are springing half a finger length out of the water. Little gothic windows, sinking, flashing and sinking back into rings of ripples. How did they get here? How did any of us? A biologist friend explains they must have climbed the tiny streams whose dry black beds run inches deep in spring and fall. Or birds may have dropped them. Poetic beginnings, romantic but scientific. Until she said they'd be there, I never saw them. What else lives in here? A lifetime couldn't count them all. Yet once there wasn't a single living thing on Earth. Chemicals, complex mixes, lightning, and something began remaking itself. Stubborn, creeping like happiness across the landscape. Now from a work in progress, uh, out all day. The George River Caribou Herd. Uh, this is set in Toronto. Along Devonshire, a line of dump trucks idles. As one crawls roaring out of its square pit like an angry mastodon, another creeps down slope to be loaded with blue-gray glacier dregs the city digs and builds on. Bloor Street westbound is pale with their dust. Traffic twirls it high. The wind snatches it up and around the world. Some even falls on the George River caribou herd, walking from James Bay to the Labrador Sea, 800,000 strong. If you were there, the dust would be black flies. You'd hear only ankles clicking, the blurts and murmurs of caribou bellies, the rasp of teeth and lips tearing the lichen free, the soft knock of their hooves on stone, the light breeze blowing around the world. Uh, another Toronto poem, uh, the Robarts Library is the, the main library of the University of Toronto. And I was going to, it was just being, it was being constructed when I was going to library school in London. And we call it Fort Book because it's brutalist architecture. 
looking north from the 13th floor of the Robarts Library. This fresh-washed atmosphere's a plane's busy hiss, as if we'll soon lift off above clouds trudging west to Mississauga. Tonight's frost will signal the turn of Toronto's green roof below to red, orange, yellow skeleton. In the elevator, I inhale beauty and youth as we ascend into time's mercies. We can't hear Hurricane Sandy sob and falter on the walls, hunger wail through plastic-sheeted camps, bullets splatter against the school bus, sirens. The terror is absorbed into the books, infinitesimal in their great heart, their great silence. I was the writer-in-residence at the Saskatoon Public Library uh, from September till the end of May, hence the, uh, the hat. I'm trying to pass for somebody who knows something about football. <laughs> so I'll read, uh, I'll end with a few poems from the Saskatoon Suite. Almighty Voice. The book that tells us how to be lies always open. Yellow leaves, yellow elm leaves sweep past in prairie breeze, prairie dust that's everywhere in Saskatoon. Our pride is our killing winters. Survival chills us country calm, country cooperative, even to strangers, almost innocent. Talk of the harvest everywhere, delay, grain lodged, flattened in wind and rain, Almighty voice, silenced, starving, 1897, age 22, still tells us the land doesn't care who it teaches. Two peregrines hunt the river park. A sulfur, battered pale, struggles upwind. Wandering spirit, in memory of Elise Partridge. When the heart, that shy, wise animal, comfortable in its failing cage, wakes in pain, pounding tenderly for attention. We can offer only discomfort. We breathe. Swell red ribs hanging off coat rack spine, flex cartilage invisibly gleaming, so that our sad lieutenant has full room to pulse sorrow and rage to every cell, feed this body the unfeeling world. I'll close uh, with Poundmaker. As I walked home one winter night, a white hair stood in Temperance Street. Its black-tipped ears and backward-looking eye attended my approach. You're not from here, it said. Spirit of the place, when we are gone, our homes and cars and streets return to prairie, you will remain sniffing for swelling buds above the snow. To make peace with grief that rends me, I see that winter night, the great white hair. Thank you. That's John Donlin again. Everybody give him another hand.
And that was John Donlin from, uh, again, July 1st, the morning of July 1st, uh, back in 2015 at the debut of what is now uh, an annual Poets at Art Fest uh, poetry series, this year number five in that series. And it begins again tomorrow, but I'll talk about all of that in a few minutes. First, I probably should do this at this point, and I'll be right back. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group, while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio sit, News. Sit back, relax, listen to some hip-hop with the premium uh, plus Friday. Non-stop rockin' till it's time to go. The DJ professional rockin' the show. The fantastic dollar bill every Friday night, 9 p.m. Sit back, relax, listen to some hip hop on the premium plus show. Friday night, Enjoy camping, cottaging, hiking, or being outdoors after a long winter? We are not alone. Every summer, Ontarians far and wide escape the daily grind and head to the great outdoors. But holidays have the ability to turn deadly due to Lyme disease a potentially fatal disease caused by the bite of a black-legged tick, known as a deer tick. Causing similar symptoms to the flu, such as fever, headache, fatigue, muscle and joint pain. However, if you see a red, bullseye-type rash, chances are you don't have the flu. Take a few precautions to make sure Lyme disease doesn't ruin your vacation this year. Avoid shrubs and tall grassy areas where black-legged ticks are known to live. Bug repellent containing DEET is an effective way to prevent ticks from biting you. Cover up. When you're in areas that are known to have ticks, cover all exposed areas of your body. Wear white so you're able to see if a black tick is on you. Infected ticks are primarily found along the north shores of Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and the St. Lawrence River. Be prepared this summer and don't get ticked off. 
And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I hope you can stay tuned for the second hour today. And in it, uh, we're going to continue with three more readings from that uh, debut of what is now the Poets at Art Fest uh, series. And so... uh, I hope you can stay tuned and catch that. Uh, Three more uh, readings from, and that will be the first session then in the afternoon. Uh, The one thing I do always do at the end of each hour before I get into uh, several minutes, it looks like I have, and I'm probably going to use them all up as well, Uh, talking about upcoming events. Uh, The one thing before I do that, though, uh, is I try to remember to do this at the end of every hour is to let you know in case you missed part of it, want to hear part of it again or something like that. Uh, These shows are saved to my blog space for it uh, shortly after I get home and uh, will remain there for four years at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. So this hour will, as will the next one, once I get home, it's usually about 6.30, 7 o'clock in that area. Here, Eastern Daylight Time, I guess I should say that, because we stream live. You're listening to this all over. Let's go ahead and uh, talk about, uh, I'm going to briefly mention calls for submission, spend a little more time with one than the other. The other I will mention first, though, does have a later call deadline, and so I'll have lots of time to promote that, several shows, or at least a couple more. Uh, It's a call for submissions for poetry, prose, photography, or visual arts. And that's for the Free Lip magazine. They are a bi-monthly online journal. And they're looking for those kinds of submissions. So, again, poetry, prose, photography, visual art. And uh, the call is, it's thematic, I should say, uh, that uh, lets you know. Uh, The call is out for the next issue and has been out uh, for quite a while. The theme for the July issue, which is the next one, is Humanity. Uh, Call deadline is July 17th, so still about three weeks. Maybe not quite, but pretty close. The one that I want to spend just a bit more time with is because it is after, let's see, how long has it been? Oh my gosh, I thought I had it written in here. I think it's like uh, at least 13 years old. I don't believe it's not written in these notes. Uh, But it's been around for quite a while. Uh, Big Pond Rumors uh, has released uh, two issues a year, uh, both winter and summer. Oh, here we go. Since 2006 is when uh, when it was first started. So I guess that's pretty close with 12 years. Uh, but uh, more like 13, it looks like. This, their call for submissions is out, and this will be their very final issue. And uh, the reason I want to make sure you're aware of it is the deadline uh, for this issue expires in just a couple of days, uh, end of day, June 30th, so just two and a half days for you to look into that and see if you'd like to submit it uh, 
Let me tell you what. I'm just going to give you uh, give you their website, and then maybe I'll go back to free lit since I forgot to do it there. So, uh, Big Pond Rumors re- website is www.big-pond-rumors.com. So. Why don't you go there and check it out, and you can find their calls for submissions, everything. And, oh, here we go. Uh, Free Lit uh, is the other one, and that's July 17th, the first one I mentioned, www.freelitmagazine.com. Now, excuse me, I'm going to mute myself for just a second here because I'm going to sneeze. Sorry about that. And let's go ahead and move into events. Uh, There is a uh, weekly uh, event that happens. They meet every Wednesday night except for those in August. So they're still meeting yet for another month before they resume again in September. It's called the Limestone Writers Writing Group. And they meet again every Wednesday night during the summer. Well, they meet in room 239 at Stafford Library always, but during the summer, an hour earlier, so from actually May through July, you'll want to be there at 6 p.m., so instead of 7 p.m., which it is in the fall and winter and earlier spring. So anyway, uh, they are there to critique and support one another's writing. Uh, They uh, cover fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and they say memoir are all represented. If you're interested, uh, it's David Pratt, who you're actually going to hear, I think, in this, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes, you're going to hear some poetry from him. He was at uh, the first uh, poet at Poets at Art Fest uh, debut event. So, uh, But that's the person, and it's uh, his... Email address, though, is just his first initial, D. Pratt, and then it's D-P-R-A-T-T, 1939, at hotmail.com. Coming up tomorrow afternoon, uh, it is, and I've been to everyone. I'm sorry to miss this tomorrow, but uh, as you'll see in a second, I do have other commitments and other plans. So uh, it's... The Hot Chocolate, and now they call it the Hot, because it started in the winter, it's the Hot Chocolate Iced Tea and Lemonade in Smaller Letters Charity Concert uh, Series. Uh, this uh, It's a monthly Saturday afternoon music uh, series organized and hosted by the musical duo known as Saf Decaf. Uh, they are Haley Sarfeld and Steph Kielhack. Uh, the series debuted in December 2018 at 99 York and has always been held there uh, the, uh, on the last Saturday of each month. Uh, musicians are vetted and invited, and each uh, event sponsors a different, deserving, and socially impactful charity each month. Uh, the, this month's charity will be Planned Parenthood Ottawa. Admission is a suggested $10, but it's also pay what you can. Uh, they, uh, it says there will be hot chocolate, and now I guess there are going to be more beverages as well. So uh, I'm guessing it's going to be iced tea and lemonade. So 
there's uh, I would suggest well, it's going to be held at the Community House, 99 York Street, and I think I already played that PSA as well earlier. Uh, you, they've got a Facebook page for it. You just uh, type in Hot Chocolate Charity Concert and Saf Decaf in Facebook, and it will take you right to the page. Anyway, it's Saturday, June 29th, and it's either 2 to 4 or 2 to 4.30. It might be 2 to 4, but I've got 2 to 4.30 here. That might be a mistake, but it's better to say it runs that long and then it's covered. So anyway, again, go to, uh, check out uh, Facebook, and again, and that's every uh, last Saturday of every month. And now let's go ahead and talk about Poets at Art Fest three uh, five, because that is the thing that's happening over the course of the next three days, and uh, why I can't go to that hot chocolate charity series. But this is, I'm really looking forward to. This will be the fifth iteration of this annual monthly poetry uh, festival tied to this year's again. Um, but it's this year's Art Fest Kingston 2019. Uh, the event probably has, I don't know, lots of tents. I just came from the city park where it's being held, uh, setting up the poetry tent for tomorrow. And uh, lots of tents there. Uh, the Poetry Festival will again include 55 featured poet readings by poets from across Ontario and Quebec. Uh, tomorrow morning, an early morning writing workshop I'll facilitate. Uh, I've done that each of the last four years as well, and again this year. I will also be launching, uh, Kingston launching, my uh, latest book, of uh, poetry called An Evening Absence Still Waiting for M Moon. Uh, that's going to be on Sunday uh, morning as well uh, from 1030 to 1130, uh, casual, casual launch, mostly conversation. I will do a short reading uh, shortly after it begins at 1030, so probably about 1045. Another thing that's happening there this year is uh, there's an interactive a community interactive blackout poem, a creative exercise for anyone who wants to participate in it. Uh, and then the work, whoever, what's ever created, will be displayed. And I've already got uh, all that fixed up as well. So ready to begin to hang uh, blackout poetry uh, from whoever wants to do that. It should be a lot of fun. Again, a 55 Poets runs every day uh, earlier again tomorrow, uh, but every day from uh, 10 until 6. I should mention tomorrow's workshop starts at 9 o'clock. Uh, Sign-up does begin at 8.45, and I'd encourage you to get there a bit early to do that. So, and it's been... Uh, it's been a lot of fun doing that workshop every year there. Uh, the following night on Tuesday uh, night uh, here in Kingston uh, will be the next in the end. The Journey Continues open mic readings in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. Uh, that is Tuesday, July 2nd from 7 to 9.30. Doors do open at 6.30. The Elm Cafe is located at uh, 303 Montreal Street, which is right on the corner of Montreal and Charles Street. If you live closer to Tweed, uh, you might want to check out their first Tuesday night of the month series, and it meets, it's been meeting at the same location there uh, for their monthly events since they began it, and that is the Tweedsmere Tavern. And uh, I'd encourage you to check that out July 2nd, Tuesday, and they run that. 7 to 9 p.m. They do have a Facebook page for that as well. So uh, 
see where we're at. It looks to me like it is 5 o'clock, so let's go ahead and jump back into four, uh, five years ago. doesn't seem possible. And uh, we should correctly introduce this hour. You are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. In case you, if you've already been listening to the first hour, you know what's going on. But in case you just happen to tune in into this hour, we are celebrating. And hopefully you heard at least a little bit of uh, a few of the announcements before you turned in. But again, if you didn't, let's just pretend like you didn't and then everybody will know what's going on. So let's go ahead and... uh, Several years ago, I always used to uh, edit readings that I recorded to a CD. And uh, for the last four and a half years, it's been to a memory stick. So I don't really have something that is physical. uh, to, And uh, I only have so much room on my computer to save things. So... uh, as I mentioned in the first hour, things are saved on a blog space for four years, but that's as far as I can go with that. So we're celebrating the fifth year this weekend of Poets at Art Fest. Uh, it was originally debuted back in 2015 on July 1st. Uh, and, uh, and it began in the morning that morning uh, as simply Poets at Art Fest, and then it just blossomed into an annual reading series. But all that said, um, because I still used CDs before I went to the memory stick, I do have my found copies. I had actually saved uh, the discs. Uh, I thought, who knows, maybe this will come in handy someday, and I guess it did. So kind of in celebration of the start of our fifth year and kind of a nice kind of prelude or something into it, I decided to pick six readings uh, from the very first sessions of the very first day of Poets at the debut event, Poets at Art Fest. No numeral. So there you go. This year it's Poets at Art Fest 5. And... uh, So you're going to hear in this hour from that day readings by Alyssa Cooper, David Pratt, and Susan Olding. This first, though, like I did in the first hour, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So again... As we move back into Poets, as we begin to slide into Poets at Art Fest 5, again, a three-day poetry festival coming up from Poets at Art Fest, the original debut. Again, first day, first two sessions of the very first of those. Here is Alyssa Cooper. 
Up first this afternoon, we have Alyssa Cooper. Uh, she is a Canadian writer with a graphic design uh, diploma and a passion for storytelling. Uh, she collects, oh, and I've usually done this every time too. These are her books. So very prolific, and the one I'm reading as well. Uh, she collects old books and antique typewriters, and has a preference for the darker side of fiction. Alyssa is the author of three traditionally published books, Salvation, Benjamin, and Cold Breath of Life. The Motel Room and Whispering Peak were her first forays into independent publishers, publishing, and were the stories that led to the creation of Whispers. She currently lives now, temporarily, because she's taking off to Malaysia, and later today even, or, or soon, uh, uh, her hometown was Belleville. She's living in Kingston uh, with her cats, her cacti, and her personal library. Let's give a hand. Alyssa Cooper. Thank you for the introduction. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Alyssa, and I'm going to be reading a series called The Crown Series. Um, the first three parts of Crown were actually published in Cold Breath of Life, my first poetry collection. And I'm expanding the series and hoping to make an entire collection of just poems on the same theme. The Crown series is um, its very important to me personally. It's about a girl that I knew who made a poor decision and took her own life when we were younger. Um, so I'm going to start with the first three parts of the Crown series that you can find in Cold Breath of Life, and then I'll go on to the ones that aren't yet published. Crown. The day I heard the news, it came not through meeting or even a phone call, but from the cold eyes and careful distance of a well-structured article, written by a man who lived half a world away. I felt the loss not in my heart, but in my stomach, with a tightness that seemed inappropriate to the length and meaning of our infrequent conversations. Later, I found the meaning of her name, and now when I speak of her, that meaning plays like a chant in the deepest part of my skull. I thought there must be something, some symbolism that my writer's mind could cling to, but it's been four years now, a solid length of contemplation, and still, I've found nothing. Part two. She makes me think of someone wonderful, but I can't place her. Someone with spun sugar lips and short fur hair, spots like a jaguar and thin, lithe muscles, run through with tendons. She's a feline. Maybe I never knew her. Maybe I dreamt her. I swear I made her up. Her body, her photographs, her life, that unrelenting sadness. She lives disconnected, an inch above the ground. Too beautiful, she has wings that we can't see. Tethers, weights, her ties a curse. The unbearable burden of solidity. She belongs to heaven, and there's only one escape. I learn acceptance from a ghost discover beauty in the sweetest words of all. Nothing will last forever. Part three. Once a year, I burn your photos, celebrating your birth, remembering your slender face, your body made up of hills and valleys, curves and slopes, all dusted in shadow. You were so beautiful once, a painted virgin queen with marble skin and dark doe eyes, and I'm sure you felt beautiful then, in that last moment as you threaded the noose. I'm sure you tried, dressed for a party and swinging in the sunshine, but no one leaves a beautiful corpse. 
There is no beauty in death. <clears throat> A screeching mass of open mouths. So metaphorical as to be unrelatable. Burning wicker and dripping ink. A horde of worms that twist and writhe on every inch of my bones. Roiling flames and boiling flesh. A keening, screeching mass of open mouths and vocal cords. I wake on the cusp of morning, and I believe that I've dreamed of you. Jade. She has a cigarette in one hand, but never seems to smoke it. The glowing ember bobs as she speaks, her aching, mellow eyes and the downturned bow of her mouth. She was there once, the sum of her parts, a blur of memory, like trying to recall some half-forgotten and sleep-deprived dream. But now, now she is the ache of a missing tooth as my tongue moves across the gap and worries the clot. She's the pulse in my jawbone and the taste of blood on my gums, and all the words that I've never written are still trapped inside my palms. I talk to my reflection. I dreamt that I cut off my hair with a kitchen knife, black and bitter teeth splintering in my reflection. That girl in the mirror, she's not me, but we're so close. I adore her solidity, her deeply shadowed eyes. She reaches out and touches me. She tickles me. She wakes me. But then I laugh out loud, and I look to my side, and I realize that I am alone. The burden of our journey. We write letters that lips will never read, and in dreams we whisper the words that we would never dare to speak aloud. With quivering, ink-stained fingertips, I memorize the curves and valleys of your face, every precious landscape fading into the next. We watch the sun rising into a swell of bruised black clouds, the light so muted that the red is like clotted blood and we cannot bear to turn away from the horror. We walk through sallow fields on aching feet, longing for the cooling breeze we barely remember, gasping desperately in our need. We walk in search of water, a hazy mirage in the back of our minds that we are sure must be there. I carry the burden of our journey in a sling across my shoulders, the weight of the world resting on my thin, curved back. No quarter. There is a storm coming. It brews inside my chest, with bruised dark clouds and wind breathing fire. My skin crackles with electricity, my hair standing stiff from the static of holding lightning, holding it in my womb like a life. I will give birth to a hurricane. I will drown in my rains. I will become a maelstrom, and I will show no quarter. The Lisbon Beast. Heads lean together in sorrow, in sadness too heavy for sound. They bide in silence, crushed into each other, crushed into the temple they created from the memory of her bones. They exude thought in subtle shifts of weight and of air. Locked inside together, they've lost the need for language. They languish in pillows, a tangle of limbs and intertwining locks, white skin glowing in the meager light that makes its way through the curtains, through the mold. A creature with embracing arms and some strange hive brain. They lounge in their unnameable grief. They breathe in thick air and expel their sorrows, dripping from pink mouths and deep black nostrils. Your older sisters, they orbit around the space you've left behind. They are stubborn little moons, remembering the spot you held once, remembering your eyes and your wild, dreaming stare. They melt under the pressure of the weight you no longer hold. They spread their arms like wings to cling to all that they have left. 
Their skin fades to gray in the dying sunlight. Their flesh melts into sheets and blankets, their throne of suffering between two single beds. With heaving sighs and subtle shifts, tiny movements, their pain too deep for tears, too complex for sound or words. A creature with 16 limbs and four matching heads all bent together with drooping eyes. Your older sisters, you've trapped them here. You've trapped them in this rotting, aching house. But they'll meet you soon. They're on their way. I've already seen it. Undiagnosed. I want to pace until my feet bleed. Until the flesh is worn away and my lungs turn to lead and my heart bursts in its morbid desperation to escape the confines of my blackened chest. Constant motion, ceaseless thoughts, an anxiousness without cause, some burning need that I can't comprehend. I want noise and light and color. I want to run until I can't breathe. I need something, anything. I need to feel this emptiness that gapes and maws the mouth of a cave, a huge and cavernous space that leaves me shaking. I am nothing, and I cannot stand to be alone. Twin bodies. The fingers clutching mine let go all at once. Shock and horror and inconceivable loss. There is no warning, no expectation. Just pain, so pure and distant that it seems to seep like an ichor from my dreams. I'm lost. She had me spinning so fast, and now the world won't settle. I'll shear the fur from the side of her head, pour spun sugar down her tightened throat, and dance. Dance under those terribly twisted boughs. I'll open my eyes and silence my blood and find my twin bonnies swinging from the maple, swinging in the sunshine. When names held power, we're past the point of pain. We've reached uncertainty now, waking up wrong and confused. I've misplaced something, something unspeakably important, but I don't know what. I wake up groggy, out of focus, and I know that something is wrong. Something is not the way that we remember. Rooms are still and air is thin. Something elemental was changed when we weren't looking. I wake up missing something. I wake up with your name on my lips. Winter. The cold forms ice in my fingertips. Tiny shards that grow crystals in my skin. Little knives digging deep, deep, deeper, replacing flesh and draining blood until my limbs are dead and strangely heavy, useless at my sides with no articulation. Winter creeps in like a specter, with sucking mouth and gasping need, lips closing over mine to steal away the summer, swallowing down my carefree soul and gorging on the heat that I've stored in my bones. The new year weighs heavy. Too many days of smothering clouds and dowsing rains, this loss of sunshine, I am hypnotized by darkness and by moisture, made a ghost by the winding down of time. And so I drink coffee. I drink coffee until my teeth are stained and dark and I smoke until my throat burns like fire and the taste of blood climbs onto my tongue. I read old books and I wait for the new year to take the place of the last. Summer. The sun grows hot, thick air and damp, moist breaths. My soul seeps out through my mouth. It languages in a slush that fills this room like a womb, delivering life with an amniotic kiss. I bathe in sweat, winding sheets like bandages around my burning flesh. I roil and roll. I scream out loud in wordless tones as the glare of the sun from the distant window blinds my eyes, burns dry my throat. My hair is in knots and the bile drips lipless from my mouth. Something primal in me lingers. 
It howls. It screams for heat as the rainforest air corrodes away my senses. Hands hooked like claws, arched back and darting eyes. I can smell my rot with a flickering tongue. And I embrace it. I split my skin. I shed this heavy flesh. Shivering as the first cool breath touches my glistening scales. And that's going to be the last one for me. Thank you all so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Alyssa Cooper in her reading uh, in the 2005, again, debut of uh, the now annual Poets at Art Fest series. And again, from uh, July 1st in 2015, which was the first day, and we're into the second session. Alyssa began that, and... uh, the second reader from that session here is Dave Pratt. Up next, we have Dave, David Pratt. David Pratt's poetry and short fiction uh, have been widely publicized in Canada, the U.S., Britain, and Australia. He lives in Kingston. Let's give him a hand. I'd like first to thank Bruce for all his hard work setting up this uh, this occasion. It's an achievement. Let's give him a round of applause. In an age when uh, poetry has about the same cultural traction as macrame, getting a dozen people together to uh, listen to poetry feels like something of a triumph. So thank you all for coming. Uh, when the great... Um, American playwright Lillian Hellman was on her deathbed. A friend came by and asked how she was doing. She said, terrible. He asked, what's wrong? She said, I have the most terrible case of writer's block. (laughs) Well, I'll start off with a poem about writer's block. It's called To Hell With It. After staring at the unforgiving page all day, seeking in vain the incandescent phrase. I said to hell with it and went out to the lake. Beavers and winter storms had brought down trees across the trails. I cut them where they lay, then threw the logs into a disused mica mine that needed filling in. Old cedar trunks, clad in green slime, submerged a century rested in a shallow water of the bay. I winched them out and stacked them up to dry. I got 300 seedlings of white pine and sweated with a pickaxe and a spade to plant them in the stubborn rock and clay. Woodpeckers drummed, black flies besieged my eyes, geese in formations migrated overhead. Loons crawled and dived, a heron flapped away. That was my poetry for the month of May. (laughs) One place where uh, writer's block never affects me is Greece, and the next four poems are set in Greece. This is called At Street Corners. It was on some Greek island roads, I think, just after your 50th birthday, 
though no one, especially a Greek, would think you over 35. An elderly man with white mustache looked up as you walked by and instinctively raised his Panama, and you were happy all day. Thus would I transmogrify myself into a series of distinguished gentlemen, widowers with married daughters who played chess at the taverna in the evenings and appear in dis different guises at street corners on days when you were sad to raise my hat to you. This is called Innopia. She cooks an omelette with oregano, walking the kitchen tiles in tanned bare feet, her sun-bleached hair in morning disarray. Clothes dry outside and on the village street, dogs bark in counterpoint and children play. Behind us on the hillside, roosters crow. In the still air, I hear a donkey bray. I have a sense that something is complete, though what it is exactly, I don't know. Her t-shirt shows a tree branch in the snow, on it a snowy owl, our final day on the chapel's speckled mountainside of Crete. This is uh, about the immigrant experience. <clears throat> it's called Every Night I Go Back to Skopelos. My brother was killed in northern Greece, fighting the Italians in the snow. When the war ended, we rejoiced, although there was no work and very little peace. My husband said we'd emigrate, but I said no. And then our youngest child, the baby, died. On the dock, my mother screamed and cried. We came to Canada, to Ontario. It's April. I see the island in my sleep her flowers like waterfalls. I just don't know how it can still be 25 below, with drifts along the driveway four feet deep. I'm 33. I look like an old crow, dressed head to foot in black against the snow. This one's uh, set in Spain, and it refers to the Spanish Civil War. It's called La Herradura. Wave after wave rolls into the horseshoe bay. The evening breeze stirs laundry on a loof rooftop, sifts through the orange trees, rattles the shutters of condos closed for winter. In waterfront cafes, sleek German tourists drink beer and watch the sunset. I follow boot prints in the darkening sand. Wave after wave of Moroccan troops, the guns, and then the knives. Men of goodwill fell back and fell. Just beyond the breakers, a fisherman rests his oars and pays out net. Shadows invade the village. Color migrates from earth to sky. Cafes switch on blue lights. Wave after wave of civilians fleeing the wreck of Malaga. Ambulances try to forge a path. Mothers beg the drivers to take their babies. The sea is a dangerous green tonight. The setting sun begins to ignite the sky. Wave after wave of bombers of the Condor Legion 
blasting holes in the crowds of refugees. On the beach, a man stands behind a woman, his arms around her waist as they look out to sea. The ruined town on the headland is now a silhouette. Wave after wave of arrests and executions. There are no memorials. Behind the town, a shrouded moon rises above the hills. The dying sun gashes a wound in the horizon. The fronds of palm trees whisper and are still. The boot prints in the sand are filled with blood. One of my heroes is Irving Layton, and I wrote this in homage to him. It's called Irving Layton Reads. Aggressive, egotistical, and vain, you scorn your rivals and deride your friends. Your poems redolent with love and pain, contemptuous of literary trends. The literati will not take your part. Your poetry unfashionably records the motives of the genitals and heart. It's not the style to win the big awards. Aging ungracefully and overweight, disparaged by your smoother, younger peers, you startle, dumbfound, and intoxicate with every poem you pour into our ears. And in the end, it is your poetry yours. The people greet with tears and wild applause. Here's a villanelle. It's called When Seasons Change. When seasons change, the currents are profound. Our boots crunch through this brittle crust of ice. We sense the spring arriving underground. Late winter snow has eider downed the jagged spurs of granite and of gneiss. When seasons change, the currents are profound. We stop unspeaking, and the only sound is dead leaves skittering like mice. We sense the spring arriving underground. Last night I watched you sleeping, and I found your classic face for once did not entice. When seasons change, the currents are profound. I think you must have dreamed because you frowned and murmured indistinctly once or twice. I sense the spring arriving underground. These woods will not much longer be snowbound. A tide of sap flows north beneath the ice. When seasons change, the currents are profound. We sense the spring arriving underground. This poem is called Poodle. There was a big old ground dog, my brother said, living under a wood pile in the field. The dogs cornered him one time, all six of them. He lay back and slashed and bit, and in the end they all backed off. One dog lost the best part of an ear. The poodle wanted to join in, but just ran round the outside of the circle barking. That poodle, I said, must have been a poet.
The last one records an event that took place in the south of Wales in uh, 1942. It's called Carl Ludwig's Night Out. They still tell tales in the south of Wales of a March night cold and damp. In wartime, when some 70 men broke out of prison camp, they raised the alarm at Island Farm near Bridgend, Monmouthshire, where Carl Ludwig had helped to dig the tunnel under the wire. This SS man had a plausible plan, as soon as he was free, to jump with luck on a passing truck and make it to the sea. But no trucks came, so his second aim was to hop aboard a train. Down railway street with stealthy feet, he hurried through the rain. But on up ahead, he heard the tread of an elderly English male. He'd been at the pub where he'd had some grub and a gallon of English ale. Carl didn't wait. He slipped through a gate and hid himself in a yard. He managed to push right into a bush and crouched there on his guard. But this modest pile was the domicile of the fellow of whom we speak. As he entered his garden, I do beg your pardon, he stopped to take a leak. He left unaware of what he'd done there. For since Hitler's war began, every British guy would have given one eye to have pissed on an SS man. <laughs> And you just heard David Pratt uh, in his reading in, again, the 2015 debut of the now annual Poets at Art Fest annual series. Up next in it, here is Susan Olding. Here we go. Man, I've got to stop doing that. <laughs> Old habits. Here we go. Let's hit the right button this time. Here is Susan Olding. And up next, uh, Susan Olding. Susan Olding's Pathologies, A Life in Essays, won the 2010 Reader's Choice Award from the Creative Nonfiction Collective and was chosen as one of 100 Canadian books to read in a lifetime by 49th Parallel and Amazon.ca. She lives in Kingston. Let's bring up Susan Olin. <laughs> thanks, Bruce, and thanks, um, Alyssa and David and, and Brenda for your wonderful readings. Um, I have a confession to make. I'm not reading poetry. Uh, and there are two reasons for that. The first reason is that my most recent um, versions of my poems that I had hoped to read are on my laptop, and my laptop broke. And we were supposed to get it back by uh, yesterday, but that didn't happen. So, And I didn't want to kind of go through and fool around with older versions. So, um, Plus, I had just finished something yesterday um, and was kind of excited about it, so I decided I'd like to read from that. And it's a lyric essay, so it still fits into the theme of poetry. It's just sort of prose poetry. Um, we will not get all the way through this, um, so I'll read, I think I'll get probably to about the halfway point. Um, 
And um, the only thing you need to know is that it's written in sections, and each section begins with a dictionary definition, which I'll, which I'll read. It's called white matter. Slug, a slow, lazy person, a sluggard. Leaving the cottage, the girl pushes the screen door as far as it will go, just to be sure that it will spring back with a satisfying smack. She does not look behind her, does not turn to see her mother's frown or the embittered twist of her gingham dishcloth. She does not look because it serves her mother right. Get out, get out, quit lying around for God's sakes, put away that book and go. The ground, knotted with pine roots and slippery with their needles, slopes toward a narrow estuary. Down there on the floating dock, the girl's little brother pokes in the brackish water with a net looking for eels. If he catches any, her father will cook them on the hibachi for supper. She shudders. It's not that she's squeamish. Spiders, ants, wasps, mice, land snakes, tadpoles, toads, even the pickled brains in the lab where her father works. These she can look on with composure and even curiosity. But the thought of touching a live eel or any creature composed of slime sickens her. She turns from the water and heads for the fields, tucking up the hem of her skirt. A maxi, sewn for a project in home economics class, it's a swath of white cotton with an elastic waistband and a wide eyelet ruffle at its base. Years from now, she'll reject this style for its tendency to make grown women look like little girls, but now she's convinced that her ground-sweeping skirt transforms her into someone taller and older than her 12 years. And that is why she wears it as often as she can, even though she hates the way it trips her up when she walks. Past the stand of pines, she crosses a gravel road and leaps a ditch. At last she comes to the grasses, waist high, sweet smelling, home on this sunny afternoon to grasshoppers and blackbirds and hundreds of yellow butterflies. Here the sunlight scrubs the air to a transparent sheen. Here a stray breeze carries the musk of wild rose in the tang of salt. She breathes deep, brushes dried lichen from a large low stone spreads her skirts around her and pulls the offending book from the pocket of her kangaroo sweater. It serves her mother right. As she reads the afternoon away, the girl does not understand the difficulty of the task she is engaged in. She does not know her brain never evolved to read, does not know that to do so it must recycle its related powers of visual and gestural recognition and connect these to its faculties for coding speech sounds and making meaning. She does not know that the cognitive, linguistic, and perceptual hoops she must jump in order to synchronize all this are so improbable and astonishing that one day they will be likened to a neurological three-ring circus. She only knows that she isn't, as her mother seems to believe, a slothful and lazy person. She only knows that her mother, as usual, is wrong. Slug, a slow sailing vessel. The book she reads is Oliver Twist. She hasn't seen the movie, hasn't seen the stage play. She pulled this paperback from a shelf at her local Kohl's because it stood at the back with the classics and she thought it was a book for grown-ups. Oliver Twist is a child, but his world takes some effort to enter into. The first few chapters are slow going. 
reading this book is not like reading the teen magazine she gorges on back in the cabin. It's not like reading her school books, or her favorite kids' books, or the daily newspaper, or the backs of the cereal boxes. So at times, not that she'd admit this, she does not understand what's going on. She's young after all, and she lacks context. It's nearly 150 years since the novel first appeared, and during that time, much about the world has changed. Perched on her stone near Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, she is 3,000 miles away from London, a fabled city she has never seen. And though she wants more than anything to be treated as an adult, she knows, oh, she knows, though she cringes to admit it, she is almost as naive and green as her book's eponymous hero. Why, she wonders, is Fagin always called the Jew? Why does the Dodger laugh so hard at Oliver, and what do his slang expressions mean? Who is Monks? Who was Oliver's mother, and what did she do wrong? And why exactly, sorry, and what exactly is going on between Sykes and Nancy? Years from now, the girl will learn that she is not the only reader to be confused by this novel's peculiar blend of irony and social commentary and gothic horror. She'll find out that its youthful author wrote it without a significant plan and at breakneck pace to satisfy public demand. She will wince at Dickens's sentimental portraits of women and children, even as she marvels, like so many others, at the psychological depth and strange appeal of some of his ostensible villains. By then, neuroscientists will claim that emotionally compelling narratives light up the anterior insula and mid-singular cortex, the effective empathy networks of the brain, while more neutral passages do not. They'll argue that descriptions of a protagonist's pain or personal distress activate these core structures, and the higher the proportion of empathy-inducing elements in a story, the higher a reader's tendency to become immersed or lost in that book. Perhaps this helps to explain the perennial appeal of Charles Dickens. But all the girl knows now is that when Nancy steals Oliver from his kindly protectors, she loses track of time. All she knows is that she isn't aware of her surroundings, doesn't hear the blackbirds calling, doesn't taste the salt on the air, doesn't feel the heat of the sun or the roughness of the rock. Reading this story transports her. It makes her feel like one of those boats she's watched while waiting for her parents to buy groceries down in Booth Bay Village. The way they speed sometimes toward the open sea, wind billowing their sails. The way they waft and glide, their lazy drift, a mark of splendid privilege. Slug, some kind of strong drink. <coughs> Her mother shouldn't preach. She's the one who can't stop reading. Stacks of books back home as tall as these grasses. And even here on vacation, the first place she visited in town is the public library. She's just mad because she has to make the meals and do the washing up. She's just mad because she likes to nurse her novels alone, and unless the girl goes out, that is impossible. Is reading a weakness? Is it an addiction, like smoking and gambling and drinking? And if so, could it be inherited? It might be, the girl suspects, it might be. Because why else is it so hard for her to stop? Blind now to her book's faults, its creaking implausible plot, its cipher of a hero, its melodramatic highs and lows, its inconsistencies and caricatures, She's snagged by its broad satire, held by the humor of its dialogue, rocked by the rhythms of its sentences, caught in the painful predicaments of its characters. The sun beats down, setting the black print to dance on the blazing pages. 
She rubs her eyes, blinks at the bright white paper, and reads on. The girl doesn't know it, but her mother's admonitions spring from a venerable tradition. Ever since Socrates' reading has provoked ambivalence in those responsible for children's education, ever since Socrates, the fear that young people might read too much or the wrong thing has been a source of public alarm. Reading's been accused of supplanting memory and promoting the pretense of wisdom. It's been compared to the use of opium and called a compulsion and a contagion, the source of all moral corruption and a fount of savagery. Fiction, in particular, has aroused the concern of certain parties. Women from every class and station of life have been scolded for their love of novels, which have been blamed for inflaming their emotions, stirring their senses, breeding romantic daydreams, sparking radical ideas, and disappointing them in reality, not to mention ruining their eyes, their posture, and their work habits. Without this poison instilled, as it were, into the blood, females in ordinary life would never have been so much the slaves of vice. By the time the girl is grown, much anxiety will revolve around the act of reading on the internet. In China and Korea, people at computers will forget to eat, forget to sleep, neglect to defecate. In internet cafes, they will drop dead by the dozen, and some psychiatrists will push to include the designation internet addiction within the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, their profession's Bible. By then, People who say they are addicted to books as opposed to screens will claim this status ironically or as a badge of honor. Novels will be viewed as quaint and harmless at worst or improving at best. Neurobiologists will crow about their lasting and positive effects on the language centers of the brain. But now the internet does not exist. Functional magnetic resonance imaging has yet to be adopted and the dopamine hit that floods the girl's brain is the strongest she has ever known the strongest she can imagine. Slug, a heavy or hard blow, a beating. There are few passages in English literature as well known as the murder of Nancy. At seven pages out of a total of 415, the chapter called Fatal Consequences packs a punch far in excess of its near proportion. The deed itself takes little more than a paragraph to describe. The robber, Sykes, believing himself betrayed, hauls his lover Nancy from her bed, beats her with the butt of his pistol, and then bludgeons her for good measure. Before he strikes her, she begs him to spare her and prays to God for mercy. But spare her, Sykes will not. He hits and hits and hits again until her hair clings to his club and her blood splatters his clothing, until her blood soaks the walls and the floors, until the very feet of his dog are steeped in blood. In Dickens' day, and for 150 years thereafter, this chapter was mostly dismissed as the lowest melodrama. Most adaptations of the story shrink from portraying its full brutality. But recent research suggests that the scene was based on fact. Only months before Dickens finished up his manuscript, one Eliza Grimwood was killed in a similar fashion. Like Nancy, Eliza was a prostitute. Like Nancy, she was taken from her bed. Like Nancy, she was forced to her knees. The case was notorious at the time, and Dickens certainly knew of it. His own version of the story was a source of pride to him. After he wrote it, he showed it to his wife, Catherine. She fell into an unspeakable state from which he augured well. His faith in the material lingered long after he'd finished Oliver Twist, his first apprentice novel. Its criminal characters kept their hold on him. 
Some 30 years later, overriding the objections of some of his friends and associates, he took to performing the scene in public. Acting out the four principal parts in turn, he is said to have embodied these characters so thoroughly that he became them. Every time Dickens staged the murder, some of his spectators would become hysterical. After one such reading, he claimed to have had a contagion of fainting, and yet the place was not hot. I should think we had from a dozen to twenty ladies taken out stiff and rigid at various times. Nor were the audience members alone in feeling the effects of his performance. At nearly sixty, his health was frail. His family worried about him. At their insistence, he hired doctors to stand by at his public readings. In checking, they discovered that as he threw himself, body and soul, into the violent action, his pulse would race as high as 112 be beats per minute. Later, some of his loved ones would blame his enthusiastic and repeated presentations of this story for hastening his stroke and early death. Dickens, his friends, and his audiences intuitively understood what neuroscientists would only discover more than a century later. Reading heightens connectivity in the central sulcus, or the primary sensory motor region of the brain. To put it another way, thinking about running activates the neurons associated with the physical act of running. So by extension, reading about beating someone activates the neurons associated with actually beating someone. Perhaps the age-old fears about the dangers of reading have some basis in neurobiology after all. But perched on her lichen-spotted rock near the shores of Maine, the girl, who has finished the fateful chapter, is ignorant of this. All she knows is that her palms hurt from the pressure of her nails. Her gut feels tight. Her heart pounds hard. And suddenly, she's chilled to the bone. She looks up. The sun has slipped behind the line of evergreens. The sky is turning lavender. The hem of her skirt is damp. She must have missed supper. Did her mother call? If so, she didn't hear. And by this time, her mother will be furious. Half-dazed, frightened, resentful, guilty, she shuts her book, stretches her arms, wiggles her toes, and screams. And to find out why, you have to read the rest. <laughs> Thank you. And you just heard Susan Olding in her reading, and again, uh, 2000, the first, I should say, the first day of uh, the debut Now Poets at uh, Art Fest annual series back in on July 1st of 2015, uh, in the, she was in the second session uh, of that first day of that uh, Happened to be four-day artist festival that year. It's always been three cents, but it's just the way the calendar works. Tell you what, let's do this, and I will be right back. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. Station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, 
a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. by myself, Selena Chirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. CFRC Radio has been the campusing and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I'd mentioned uh, earlier that I'd have a few minutes uh, to share. looks like probably just enough time for one more announcement. Uh, It's the only one happening uh, next week uh, that I haven't gotten to. So before I do that, though, I want to thank you for tuning in today. Again, you've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name's Bruce, and again, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 And I just wanted to remind you that each hour of uh, the show each week of these is uploaded to my blog space for it, saved shortly after the show ends. And you can find it, uh, all of them, going back four years, finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And this one, too, will remain for four years. Okay, let's see how much time I have here. I think I can do it. Uh... The one that's coming up next week is the opening reception uh, for summer exhibitions at the Modern Fuel Artist Run Center. That's coming up a week from today and almost exactly begins a a week from today. So it's uh, Friday, July 5th uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. There will be remarks at 7.30. Modern Fuel can be found at the Tet Center, which is located at Suite 305, 370 King Street West in Kingston. 
modernfuel.org slash exhibitions will tell you all about what's coming up in both the main gallery and the state of flux gallery i'll elaborate a little more next week because the show still happens uh, before that event does Uh, what i do want to do though first is uh let you know that uh coming up uh right after the show and i'm actually going to end the show with a song this week uh, just because i can (laughs) And, uh, again, I want to thank you for tuning in today. So I do want to uh, let you know that coming up up right at the top of the hour, please stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music. That's hosted by Rob Carnell, and that's going to happen right at the top of the hour, right after this song I'm going to play. I've, again, I'm still a big Mazzy Star fan, so it takes everything in my power not to play them. But I am playing, uh, really falling in love again with Yola Tango. Uh, And uh, this is off uh, an album recorded all the way back in the year 2000. And uh, I think it's the title is uh, suddenly uh, Nothing Turned It... No, it's Nothing uh, Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out. I believe it's the title of the album. Anyway, the title of the song you're going to hear is called Every Day... And that is going to take us out of here. Again, check out Poets at Art Fest 5 at City Park if you're here in Kingston over the course of the next three days from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Have a great week, whatever you decide to do, and a great weekend. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.